This episode is brought to you by McDonald's. Not sure you've heard of them. <laughs> Up and coming uh, little restaurant, but they're making it. They're the little engine that could. You know, the moment of bliss when you spot your fries being scooped into the carton and suddenly time slows down. I have that all the time. I love their fries. Oh, yeah. yes. McDonald's fries hit different when they're free. That's another thing I'll tell you. And when they belong to your friends, there's no better feeling than thinking you're out of fries and then you discover extra fries at the bottom of your bag or else my son still hasn't finished his fries yeah. and I'm done with mine. And uh, he used to be weaker than me so I could just take them. Yeah. Now I can't because he's stronger than me. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's no wrong way to eat McDonald's fries, but we all think our way is the best way. And I like stealing them from someone else. That's my favorite <laughs> way. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. McDonald's, check them out sometime. They're everywhere. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, you know you personalize your entire day. That's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. That's a lot of bees. Yeah. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. That's important. You want an affordable price. Yeah, I do want one. Yeah, if it's too much, well, that's just not going to happen. No. <laughs> State Farm's on it. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. I'm lowering my voice. Mm, Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. Hey, recently I had a really nice conversation with Billy Corgan. Always been a fan. I admire his work. And I did this as part of my words and music series that aired on SXM's Team Coco Radio channel 106. Uh, we talked about music that inspired Billy, and because it was on the radio, we were able to even play the songs. It was cool. I enjoyed the conversation so much. I thought, let's share it with my podcast listeners. Now, unfortunately, as you can imagine, we're not able to play the songs in the podcast itself, so I would encourage listeners to either do the following. If you're a Sirius XM subscriber, open up the SXM app and search Conan and you'll be able to find the conversation with the songs. Or if you're not a SiriusXM subscriber, we'll provide a list of the songs in the episode notes so you can listen along to the songs with the music streaming service of your choice. Anyway, um, you'll figure it out, but uh, we had a lot of fun. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Fall is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell, brand new shoes, walking blues, the fence, books and pens I can tell that we are gonna be friends Yes, I can tell that we are gonna be friends I want to start with, uh, I, this is a nice memory I have, Billy. And I think about this sometimes because I think we both hit the scene around the same time. And when I mean hit the scene, I don't think anyone said that in 30 years, <laughs> maybe 40, so I apologize. But 1993 was when I started doing my late night show. I think that's when Smashing Pumpkins sort of show up on the, is that correct? 93? Uh, to the, gen uh, to to the, the general gen world. Yes, yes, to the general public yes. is what I meant. That's, that's when that's people, when we, people are like, oh, you're here. You're here now. Yeah. Yes. I was around before 93. Me too. Um, <laughs> we were slaving clubs somewhere, I'm sure. You know, I had this crazy year or two at the start of my show. It was very rocky and we were doing a lot of weird stuff and uh, coverage was... People were not happy with what I was doing. And then I was in, invited to go to the premiere of Howard Stern's Private Parts, 
so I went, cause that was one of those things where you go, it's a, it's a, you know, you've been asked to go to this huge media event and you go. And I went, but remembered thinking, I don't know, do I belong here? Should I be here? And there's this, everybody in the world is there and we're all packed into this crazy situation. And I think the next thing I know, Marilyn Manson is like in my face, maybe doing a bit, maybe not trying to get me to drink out of like a chalice of something that looked evil. It was all very weird. And Do you I remember was, who he was with? I don't. Jenna Jameson. Oh, that's right. Oh, right. Okay. Well, your memory is better than, than mine. I think I was more focused on what's in that chalice than what, who's he with. But I was feeling really uncomfortable in kind of almost a high school way. Like I, I don't belong here. I wish I wasn't here right now. Sounds like you're recounting the lyrics for Creep by Radiohead. You know? Yes, I am. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember thinking, I wish I had a different body. I wish I had a different soul. Um, uh, no, but then uh, you, who I didn't really know well, said, like, came over and just said, like, to Marilyn Manson, like, back off, dude. And then you were like, Conan, how are you? You were so nice to me. Well, I was a fan. So that helps. Well, that was, but what I recall is everyone else was being so performative and self-conscious, mm -hmm. trying to outdo each other in some spectacular way that would get attention. And you just cut over and in a very Midwestern nice way, uh, said hi to me and um, established a bond. And I, every now and then that pops into my head as you sort of coming out of the fog as a nice, decent person. Oh, thank you. And being nice to me. And so that, I just thank you for that because I owe you one for that. I have a similar story from um, Jimmy Fallon mm -hmm. where um, I didn't realize it, but the show that we played on with 98, Cameron Diaz was the host. Mm -hmm. That was Jimmy's first ever SNL. Right. And he said he was super nervous. Mm -hmm. And he said it was the pumpkins calming him down backstage and loosening him up and making him feel comfortable that allowed his debut to be a success. I had no idea. We were just being ourselves, you know. Right. But it's like, I'm now realizing that uh, you're like a life coach. <laughs> I've, been, I've been accused. I do. <laughs> you were, you know, what if you're in the background of every uh, key performer's moment in their life, just calming them down I, I, just I before I they go mind, on? Honestly, I wouldn't mind it. Um, yeah. I'm I, just, I'm very. I don't know if there's a, mora a, mor a moral tale or a morality tale in there, but I certainly, uh, part of it is you coming from that DIY punk community. You know, it's like, don't get too high on yourself. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the other thing is when you start interfacing with what at that point was mainstream MTV, whatever BS culture, you know, I mean, I have memories of like shaking Sumner Redstone's hand at some, you know, like, why am I, why am I shaking Sumner Redstone's hand? You know, right. You had his, didn't and, you have his poster on your wall as a kid? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I had all the great industrialists. Well, on I, the all wall. I remember was some Mandarin like character who looked like right. guy. he was on some life extension technology, you know, like something out of, I don't know, uh, dune yeah yeah you know what i mean with like the hot 21 year old and then like assistants hovering around and whispering and you know you kind of get pushed forward shake his hand I'm like okay no and is he you know and they tell you and it's like you know but can you swear on your podcast or yeah like, sure we encourage uh, it uh and i'm like i don't give a shit like yeah. you know what i mean like is he a nice person it's very midwest like you said and it's like I don't know. So yeah, that's yeah, it, a very. I, I guess there's. I've been looking forward to talking to you, not just because I'm a big fan of your work and I really love to talk about music. That I I do feel that your trajectory, which I find amazingly cool. Uh, I also, and now it sounds like I'm complimenting myself, which I don't 
I did not intend, but I relate to a lot of what you've done. I understand it. It makes sense to me. And the way that you have, you know, I'm thinking about the arc of this success that you've had, but how you've taken control of it, how you have shaped your career with a lot of thought, I find to be really impressive. Thank you. You know, there is, I guess, one exception to what I'm about to say, but you're the only person who's ever ever let me sit on the couch and talk. Of all the shows I've been on, and I've been on them all, Mm -hmm. no one ever sat me on the couch and talked. And invariably, someone in your world, you'll be watching some late show, yeah, and you're watching some vacuous actor tell some very unfunny story, and everybody's laughing like they're all high on oxygen. Right. And somebody turns to me and kind of slaps me and goes, why don't they ever let you talk? You're much, much more interesting. And say, no, they don't want me talking. Well, it's funny. Because, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, they but, don't want me on that couch. There's a reason I'm not on that couch. But you're the only person to ever let me on the couch. So thank you for that. I remember I didn't ask you, just charged over. You sat <laughs> and you, we had security. I remember I was wearing leather gloves. And you were like, why are you wearing leather gloves? And I gave you some stupid answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, you know. It's like you took the bait, right? Yes. Yeah. I wore the leather gloves on purpose. And you're yes. like, why are you wearing leather gloves? And it's like, funny you should ask. Right. And then we were off and running. Yeah. Uh, well, let's start. You know, first of all, I want to start in the present because you have this new album, uh, Atum. And I was listening to it today, and it's I, I, what I love is you orchestrate your music. I don't know, I, I'm, I'm not. We call it that too, actually. Yeah, you orchestrate it really, uh, really beautifully, and you can tell that there's a lot of uh, um, almost like classical thought that goes into it. And no training, by the way. No training, none, zero. So it's like a, it's like a. How is that possible? I don't, I don't understand. Know. The, the the great story I like to tell is when I was very young, it was tested as being gifted in music, you know, mm-hmm. and. Uh, they called my father and he was a musician and said, your son's probably a musical savant, a seven years old or something. Mm-hmm. And so a week later, they gave me a piece of paper, told me to circle the instrument that I wanted to play and that I needed instruction. And I went home and, and my father saw the cost and ripped up the paper and threw it in the garbage. And that was the end of my musical life up to that point. Oh, wow. So somebody recognized early on that I had some kind of... Do you remember what uh, instrument you circled? Saxophone. Maybe your dad did you a favor. <laughs> I had a, I had a, I had a, oh no, it you gets, be, you'd be touring with Sade right now. No, it gets better. <laughs> it's better. I had a step family, uh-huh. um, uh, German and Polish mm-hmm. and, uh, and the Polish uncle, uncle Henry, uh, when he found out that I wanted to play guitar when I was 14, he, he literally pulled me aside and said, there's no future in the guitar. What you want to play is the accordion. You'll always have a job. And you know, when you're having that conversation, like, yeah, yeah. is this real? Is yeah. he really trying to convince me to play the accordion? And he was dead serious. I think I can top that with an even more absurd story, which is I get the late night show in uh, April of 93. So it's it's almost, it's exactly, wow, exactly 30, exactly years. 30 years since I was- They haven't killed um, you yet. They've tried. They've winged me a few times, but- I get this job, it's announced that the replacement for David Letterman is going to be this guy, Conan O'Brien. Everybody's saying, who is this guy? What's happening? And I get a call from my uncle who lives in Worcester, Mass, who I love, by the way, he's a great guy, uh, Ned. And my uncle Ned calls me and he says, what is this? What are you doing? I'm reading in the paper and he said, the law. You should study the law. He was talking to me about getting into law and trying to convince me that law was me. better than hosting one of only three late night shows in America. <laughs> and he meant it. He back, meant back it. Back when people actually watch late night shows. Yeah, exactly. I know. So it was, uh, uh, but he was saying, I'll never forget, he said, you can, as a lawyer, you can be a performer in front of the judge, but you're also writing your own scripts when you prepare a case. But you're, and I'm like, <laughs> what? 
no, I am not going to now call NBC and say this isn't happening. I'm going to Can you imagine that conversation going to law school. They would have said, fine, we'll get some other idiot. Who, but, who ran the, the network back then? Uh, it was a guy named Bob Wright. And I think he actually took a call from my uncle. That's true also, is that my uncle also called Bob Wright and said, what do you do? Because, and then here's the connection. Bob Wright had gone to Holy Cross College in Worcester and so had my uncle. Oh my goodness. So he got through and they, they said, Conan's uncle's on the line and wants to talk oh, to you. And so Bob God. Wright picked it up and he was like, what are you, what are we doing here? I mean, you went to the cross. I went to the cross. This is, is this the right thing for him? I think the law would be better. And he, for years oh, afterwards, God. would howl telling that story. That's amazing. Yeah, but he was right. I should it's, have done it's it. One, it's so, it almost sounds invented, but it's, that's why it's so good. No, no, that it's is true, a yeah. very true story. Um, but here's what's amazing to me. This is a, uh, Atum has 33 songs yes. on it. and Another it's... career suicide, I was told. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean... I was, no, I was no, I'm, I'm not joking. I, I was it's just, so you're I mean, you're so prolific and it's but it's interesting because a lot of artists right now are focusing on these really small projects mm. and singles and things like that. And you are willfully saying this is what I'm doing and you're welcome to join me or not. But this is what I have decided to do. Yeah. Without being political, which is hard to do these days, I think the culture is sick and counterintuitive to the human experience and so i've just made a decision i'm going to do whatever i think is right for what i do which is make music mm -hmm. and if people have a problem with it then don't listen i don't know it's really weird to me when you sit in boardrooms and people try to talk a musician into not making music yeah i mean those are real conversations i have and i'm like i don't understand like it's like saying Hey, you're really good at juggling. Don't juggle so much. Yeah, just a little. But why? Like, I, I can't. You I know, can't wrap my head around it emotionally or intellectually. It reminds me of when the government is paying people to destroy crops in yeah, order yeah, to yeah. stabilize the price. Yeah, it yeah feels, that's, that's that's some of the argument. They get into kind of scarcity arguments, right? Like less is more, and it's like, no. How about I'm going to be dead soon, and I'd rather leave my kids more songs than less. Like, let's start there. That's my math. Right. I don't care about your math anymore. In fact, right. your math is usually wrong. Well, one of the things that fascinates me is when you, as we said in 93, when Smashing Pumpkins arrives and you're killing it and you, and you, I've heard you talk about these years, there's all this success and yet what you're feeling around you is negativity. Oh, it's horrible. And I, you know, and I, I heard you, um, I heard you talking to Howard about it. You were talking about all the negative uh, negativity you were getting when you guys were the band. And I kept thinking, was this real negativity you were hearing or was this, was some of it real and some of it coming from your experience growing up? Bit of both. Yeah. So let's take the, the part that's real. And it's something that I didn't understand then, but I think most people would understand now because it's something that's oft talked about in our world. We use culture like a football now. Mm-hmm. So I was in the very early version of what is now the modern version of the cultural football. So somebody has no problem kicking you in the head to make a point to win their side. Mm -hmm. uh, without naming the band, there are people to this day that are still trying to assassinate me behind the scenes because they're loyal to another band. And somehow my success represents something against that band. So they're still trying to kind of kill me off behind the scenes. Yeah, There's a lot of that stuff that goes on. I had even people writing articles when the band that was successful, somebody had been a publicist for the band 
And another person that had worked with the band behind the scenes wrote an article in England saying that I was secretly from a rich family and I was pretending to be poor and abused. Totally fabricated story. Like right. what we would now call a hit piece or something. Right. Like, and I'm sitting there in, in my house in, you know, by Wrigley Field, you know, in Chicago, reading yep. about the person that doesn't exist and not understanding why are these people who I know personally, I've been to their house and had dinner at their table. Why are they trying to assassinate me in public? You know what it is? It's strange. It's the either or that I never understand, mm -hmm. which, which is, um, you know, I mean, it goes back to the early days of like Beatles or Stones. Jack Parr or Johnny Carson. Yeah. Remember that argument? Yes. Yes. Jack Parr was the t host of The Tonight Show before Johnny. And I'm dating myself, but. No, no. Um, who better to date? And I, but I, but I would say like before, you know, there was a, Jack Parr was more erudite and more, you know, wittier and Carson's more of a clown. And, you know, what are you talking about? There, it's just, it's, you can enjoy them both. They're both great in their own way. And it's so that's this strange thing of if you like the Rolling Stones, you don't have to hate the Beatles. If you love the Beatles, you don't have to hate the Rolling Stones. But to me, it's that either or, yeah. which is when you talk about the cultural football. Yeah. I think that's what we get into a lot now is you're not even a person. No. Smashing Pumpkins avatar represents, yeah, Smashing Pumpkins represents this avatar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This other band represents that other avatar. And you're the, the other avatar has to kill the, the first avatar. That's what I'm saying. So that, that is real and it persists in its own form today. The imagined part was just seeing stuff that's just, you know, I think it's like something out of an old Hollywood musical. I imagined what success would look like. And when I got there, whatever that Disneyland ride was, like I actually arrived, like there's me and you standing there at the private parts premiere. Mm -hmm. I, I got a massive album. You got a big TV show mm -hmm. and we're both standing there going, <laughs> what world are we in, right? Right, right. There's a sort of level of dispossession. So if you're not secure in yourself or you don't know kind of what the point is, it's easy to get lost in it because there's not a, you're not going to get a lot of confirmation. Um, the culture's not designed for that. And the systems of you being in the network system, me being in the major label system, those are rapacious systems that assume that you're not going to last. Right. And they right. really reward sociopaths who are literally kill their own mother to get ratings or sell records in my case. And um, they expect you to do that. And if you don't want to do that, they know somebody standing behind you that will literally- More than happy. Yes. More than happy to do and it. And you, and I don't want to put thoughts in your head, but I'm assuming you're aware of that, right? Oh, of course. You know yeah. that there's somebody standing on the other side of the wall waiting. Here's what's nice is that, and this is the where I'm going with all this, is that what I have found in, in my career uh, is that, you know, I just turned 60 like a week ago and I'm happier <laughs> than I was in my twenties and thirties mm. because I feel like I've, I've gotten to a contented place where I know what I want to make. I know what I like to do and I know how I like to do it. And I like to make it on a, on like this, for example, it's a smaller scale but I really enjoy it and it's meaningful to me. And the same thing with some of the other projects I'm doing. And it's not that I didn't like the other part, it's just that now uh, it feels like I'm directly speaking to people that are interested in what I like to do. And there's a little bit of a, I have a community. And it's, mm. it, it feels a lot more organic. And I feel that you, with the music you're making now, and then with your podcast, where you're talking about that, you're, it's this same idea of it's, it's like a Keebler elf tree where you're making the cookies. 
Um, I realize I'm, you know, saying that they, I don't really believe they make those cookies in a tree, <laughs> but the cartoon is very convincing. It's worth noting that for most of human history, that was the condition of people in the arts, mm -hmm. whether you were a traveling bard or you were the guy that they'd hire to come tell jokes at the wedding or whatever. Right, that right. was most of human life. The 20th century brought on the mechanization. And of course, you know, it rewards people like us to say, hey, you can climb up this magical escalator and make a lot of money and reach all these people. So it's very tempting. And really, there aren't many comparable games at that time. Now you look at, uh, like, I saw a clip of Rogan talking the other day, and he was talking about CNN going after him for ivermectin. And he was laughing and he was like, CNN truly believes they have the higher ground and my show's 10 times bigger than anybody on CNN. So it's like, no one's told CNN, by the way, Joe Rogan is way more influential now than you are. Like, right. they're still in the old systemic thought. So um, the other thing I like to point out is in, in kind of a just way, we've seen the erosion of what I call the gatekeeper class. In my world, it would have been the record critic, you know, whether it was Lester Bangs or whoever at Rolling sure. Stone would decide make or break it or whoever was the Broadway critic at New York Times. We all saw the movie where everyone goes to the, whatever the the restaurant after the thing and hopes and the they're waiting for the review and to it's come out. literally the difference of 500 people keeping their job or not. If one guy decides yes. that what you've done has some value, I think that's gone. Oh, uh, I experienced it. I back in the early days, the you know, one or two big critics said, nope, this isn't it. And Didn't you host some Oscars too? Am I, do I remember that? that? Didn't you host some Oscars or some Grammys? Or? I, who, me? Yeah, yeah. I, I did Emmys. I hosted okay, the Emmys. I remember that. Um, so I, I imagine you get it, You read that review too, right? You know, yeah, but I mean, this was even at the very beginning uh, when I was just starting out, it was, you, you. there were gatekeepers who told you whether this show was worth your time or not. And it had a lot of power. And as we know now, there's no such thing. There's a lot of opinions, but there's not one opinion that that can shut you down. I just love they all killed themselves. They put themselves out of business. Yeah. Because with clickbait world, they couldn't help themselves. Right. They just had to get snarkier and dumber mm -hmm. to keep up. Right. You know, and uh, and you saw its influence even on the old guard, the New York Times and stuff like they just couldn't help themselves. Like they ended up going into that. Um, obviously, even politically. Uh, particularly on the political side. So I, I just love that they've just blown themselves up. I just think it's really funny. Because at the end of the day, they're still commenting on stuff, people getting stuff done. Yep. And you can argue about the effectiveness of that person getting that stuff done. But if you're somebody who's getting stuff done, you're still getting stuff done. It's really easy to sit there in the stands of the football game and say, well, I could have made that pass that Tom Brady missed. Right. You know, I was there in the Super Bowl when he missed the pass. I was really sitting there when he missed the pass at the end of the game that cost him the Super Bowl in Indianapolis, you know, and somebody probably sitting next to me was like, I could have made that pass. You know, you couldn't have. That's why it's Tom Brady, right? Right. So I still have people come up to me in airports and tell me how to make my records. You know, it's funny to me. I've thought about this. I've thought about how I'm very lucky that the internet didn't exist when I was launching back in 93 because I don't think... You know, I had enough trouble as it was, but I think I would have gone quite mad if I, if I was... You mean in terms of feedback? In terms of feedback. I mean, there would have been a good part of it, which is I would have heard from people who I later met, younger people who were, you know... I think you would have done quite well, well I, in I this would have, culture. I guess, It's yeah. not about youth, but I'm saying, let's say the way you were being then. Yeah. Sorry, I'm being a bit of fanboy, but if you could take 94 you and pluck you into this world, I think right. you would fit quite well into this world. Okay. Well, I, I think I would have... You're memeable is what I'm trying to say. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That's all I wanted, and we can wrap it up now.
Sona, where else can you go surfing and skiing the same day, huh? I don't know. Or check out a world-class art museum and then camp at a dark sky sanctuary that night, huh? Yeah. Yeah, where else can you hike through Redwoods and then get a luxury spa treatment? Where? Well, you live there. California. (laughs) California, Sona. No matter where you go across the state, you'll find a way to play. I'm a California resident. So, Sona, you are a lifelong California resident. I'm a lifer. I love this place. This is a beautiful state. Gorgeous. So many different, wonderful ecosystems in one state. You can hang out by a Palm Springs pool. You know, you can go whale watching. You can go hiking in Yosemite. And then uh, talk about the great cities in California. You get all this amazing food, sushi, whatever you want. They got it in California. Hey, if you can't find it in California, man, you got a problem. Yeah. I shouldn't have done that. I made that up on my own. Anyway, I love California. Discover why California is the ultimate playground. Head to visitcalifornia.com to start planning your trip today. Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend is sponsored by ADT, introducing ADT Self Setup, featuring everything from motion sensors to Google Nest Cam and the Nest Doorbell with a battery or wired option. Your choice. Easily install the ADT Self Setup security system at your convenience. You don't need heavy-duty tools. And if you do need help, ADT can provide virtual assistance along the way. Self Setup from ADT grows, moves, and adapts as your needs change. You can add more products at any time, and your system easily moves wherever life takes you. It also features Nest Cams that can tell the difference between a person, an animal, a vehicle, or with the Nest doorbell, even a package. These things are getting so smart. Plus, when every second counts, you can trust ADT's 24-7 professional monitoring. You can view video of an alarm event and verify or cancel an alarm with just one quick tap. Now everyone can get trusted security from ADT installed your way with no long-term contracts. When the most trusted name in home security as the intelligence of Google, well, <laughs> you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. Google, Nest Cam, Nest Doorbell, and Nest Aware are all trademarks of Google LLC. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform. And one source of truth. This is unbelievable. I've been talking about this idea for years. I know. I want you to explain it more. I can. Okay. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required access from anywhere. I had this idea years ago. (laughs) I was telling people, no one listened to me. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems. Remember when I said that? Yeah. Because you've got one unified Unified business business management management suite. suite. You said that. Yeah. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, man. Yeah. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Conan, netsuite.com slash Conan. I'm going to say it one more time just for emphasis. NetSuite.com slash Conan. How do you think you would have handled the internet when Smashing Pumpkins is 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 first making it big? Would you have been first of all, do you read stuff no. online? No, I do not. Because I do not. No. I learned that lesson. Um 
my first mistake <laughs> with the internet was I was like, great, there's this new feedback loop. Right. I'm going to empower the fan in quotations so we can have this different type of relationship. And they all turned on me. Yeah. Because they don't want you to come off the mountain. Right. They want you up on that mountain and they want you to play whatever character they think you're playing, Moses or something, mm -hmm. um, bald, angry guy or something. So um, I learned really fast, like, no, you do not. They do, you know, it's like when people pull you aside, when you make some money and they say, you know, don't get too friendly with the help. It's right. the same thing. I, 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 I used to take fans out to breakfast and stuff. I was famous for like, like when people would line up at 6 a.m. for a show and I would get up for a morning walk, I would go down and find 50 people line. I'd take them all out for breakfast because I've heard about Andy Kaufman doing stuff sure, like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? I thought, yeah. oh, this is really fun. Like this is a new, and, and by the way, they'll post about it. You know, it'll be really fun. And invariably you would look at it and there'd be somebody complaining that, you know, when they were eating their pancakes, you didn't answer their question or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. So I, I, I <laughs> it's funny you mention that because I had a friend, I have a friend who went to see a, a famous Andy Kaufman show and afterwards Andy Kaufman invited everybody out. Yeah. And there were buses outside. And so he got on the bus and then he said it just kept going all night and the crowd kept getting smaller and smaller because Andy would say, now meet me at the here and then, now meet me here and now meet me there. And he said at the end, it was there on Coney Island, I think. And he said it was Andy Kaufman and like two other people and my friend Rodman. And, it, and the sun was coming up and I love that. I love that. But obviously that's something that you can only do for so yeah. long. And I'd learned to not read comments. And yeah. my partner's a lot younger than I am. She's 26 younger than I am. So then when we started being together and it became very public that we were together once we were having a child, she's from that generation that would, of course, go read comments because that's the world she grew up in. Yeah. You read what people say. And she was coming back saying, people think I'm a boy or saying I'm ugly. People are saying all sorts of crazy stuff about me. You know, and you, and you and tried to, She you, was reading this stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah. I had to hear about it. She was going on my fan sites reading. Um, I'm just going to interject <laughs> and say she came with you and she's uh, sitting in the room outside and she is stunningly beautiful. Oh, thank you. She's a beautiful So woman. I don't... <laughs> this is, again, proof that people on the internet are insane. Yeah. That is one of the more attractive women I've seen in a while. Mm -hmm. You're like, I don't like her. She's not pretty enough. <laughs> that's, that's madness. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, when... Uh, Kurt and Courtney were together. Mm -hmm. I went to visit Courtney at some hotel and she was obsessed because she'd seen some fan comment on the internet and the fan comment said, but she isn't even pretty. Mm -hmm. Like that sort of explained everything. You know, she was so, she was obsessed with this idea of like, but she isn't pretty. Like that's, that was the defining characteristic about why did he marry her? She isn't pretty, you know? So, um, what's well, this old thing of, you know, I could, I think the late night audience size was about 350 people in that studio audience at Rockefeller Center. 349 could be deliriously happy and I could immediately find the one person. Oh, you and I had the same disease. Who wasn't <laughs> laughing and I think it's quite common, which is what is that person's problem? You know, I learned a long time ago, you just, first of all, you don't know. Like they may, and I've had a couple of occasions where someone who didn't was not that demonstrative in a concert or at a show or something that I was doing. And then I see them afterwards and they're like very straight face. And they just say, I just want to tell you, I'm a huge fan. And they start listing all these different things. They're not demonstrative that way, yeah. or they may really despise me. Who knows? You don't know. You can't make any assumptions. Yeah, I've had the same thing. It's a waste of time. I see everything, oddly so. 
And I've had it where people will come back, somebody I know, and it, it'll be with a partner. And I'll, and I'll say to the guy, you didn't seem to have a good time. And the guy's like, what are you talking about? I like have every album you've ever made. You're like, I'm your, like your biggest fan. Yeah. And I love this. And, the, and you're, it's like, don't judge a book by the cover, right? It's like, you can't get into that crowd psychology stuff. Well, that's, uh, I went to, my daughter asked me to take her to Coachella last summer. And so I did. Oh, there was a mistake. Actually, it was, it was, it was really fascinating, but we were watching. Were you wearing an Indian headdress? I was wearing uh, uh, <laughs> cowboy chaps and nothing else. Um, uh, it was just, in, it's, it's madness. It's madness, but I really enjoyed it. And I got exposed to a lot of music and a lot of flesh that I would never have seen before. But uh, what was amazing is I remembered someone watched me watching a band that I really liked. And then afterwards said, came up to me and said, oh, I just saw you not enjoying that band. And it's just, that's how I, I'm not someone that jumps around when I'm watching music. I can watch someone who I think is absolutely hilarious and I'm just watching them saying, thinking, wow, this person's really good. I don't necessarily yeah. react the way other people would want me to react. So I remember being bummed out that that was what they took away from me was you just stared at that band without enjoying it. Do you know it. that theory that audiences are better in the dark because they're more likely to be demonstrative? Do you know that theory? I didn't know that. Yeah. No. Some people, because we, we, we use a lot of backlight, mm -hmm. very rock and roll. So the audience is usually pretty well lit and people will pull me aside and say, you know, the audience would be more into the show if you didn't have light on them because they can, they, they can, they can be themselves in the dark or something. It's, it's so strange, but. I remember uh, when I inherited the late night show, they told me that Dave Letterman liked to keep the studio really cold. Oh, yeah, 46 degrees, by the way. Yeah, really cold. And um, he said he thought it was because the laughs were better. And then I started to think, I think it's because if you clap, you're creating bodily heat. <laughs> <So> <laughs> you're, you're like getting people into hypothermia. Yeah. But it, you know. It was always an honor to play Dave's show. Yeah, of course. Would, yeah. Then immediately afterwards, we would groan and think, here we go. We're going to go to the Siberian winter and try to play a rock song. Yeah. Well, we would, uh, the person who wasn't like that, and Jim, you'll remember this, was Aretha Franklin. Mm. Aretha Franklin showed up to play our show. She was not having that shit about a cold studio. Right. And we were trying to, you know, people were trying to explain to Aretha Franklin that, well, it actually does help because between the lights and the cameras and everything, it's going to get too hot in there. No, you fuckers are going to put that here. And, you know, no yeah. one says boo to Aretha Franklin. Right. It is hard to sing. Yeah. I made the mistake one time I was like, because I'd done Letterman enough where I was like, mm -hmm. I'd always walk from the dressing room and then you walk in the cold. And it's like, it's like going cold outside and try to sing, right? Right. So I, I had this idea. I'm going to stand in the wings for about 10 minutes, adjust to the cold, Acclimate. and then I'm going to sing. And then it was worse. So I, it never worked for me. But what are you going to do? I mean, what are you, you going to pull Letterman aside? Hey, Dave, you know, I'm. Yes, that's exactly I, what you should would have done. Say, You're not Aretha Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> I am the Aretha Franklin of my genre, is what you should have said. Um, yeah. You know, we asked you, well, for, I have a, a, a one or two geek questions because sure. I'm a hack guitarist. What was the guitar that you saw as a kid that blew your mind? Was there? Well, my father played a flying V. Okay. And uh, he had a 1966 or something flying V. Yeah. And um, purple. Very cool with a, like an 1890s Indian head silver dollar, which people used to put in the back of Flying Beast because the headstocks- count, As do, a counterweight. Yeah, because the headstocks are so heavy, the guitar always wants to rotate forward. Yes, yeah. And uh, so my dad, high on whatever he was on, you know, with a very 70s mustache, that was the guitar, you know. That's Were you I, allowed to touch that? No, nah, I was not. Okay. I was not. He forbid me to touch the instrument. Wow. Um, and uh, so I was only allowed to look. I have to say that- 
the couple of times I've strapped on a flying V, yeah. I found it a very uncomfortable experience and it not something- very, It is very uncomfortable. And so then what did you, did you move on to a Les Paul? My father got me a, a Korean made Les Paul copy as it's known in the business. So right. it looks like a Les Paul, but it's some badly made one. Um, I had that, uh, I painted it black, sold it to a drug dealer. And then uh, I had a Fender Mustang that my father gave me. Mm -hmm. uh, I played that for a while, but it had very um, weak pickups, couldn't get the grunge sound. Mm -hmm. And then Jimmy Chamberlain showed up one day with a uh, 1974 yellow Strat. Uh, yellow, definitely not my color, but Richie Blackmore did play that guitar, so that was okay. And Jimmy said, I'll sell it to you for $270. Right. Which, Even at the time kind of an odd number, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I later found out because that's how much he needed for rent. Yeah, it had to be for something specific. Like... And, then, and then fast forward 20 years, I'm walking down the street in Chicago and a guy pulls me aside and says, do you still have that yellow guitar? And I said, no, that's the one that got stolen. I don't know if you heard that story. Somebody found it 27 years later and came back to me. But at that Did they want to resell it to you? No, no. This guy pulled me aside uh -huh. and said, do you still have that, that guitar? Right. Um, and I said, no. And he goes, but you got it from Jimmy Chamberlain, right? Yeah, yeah. He said, how much did he charge you for it? Oh. And I go, $270. He goes, yeah, he stole that guitar from me. Oh, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> he wasn't mad because he was, he loved Jimmy. It was some weird story, like kid's story, where Jimmy had stolen the guitar and sold it to me for rent money. And that was the, that was the guitar that I played on the band's first records. And they got, that guitar got stolen, some sort of weird karmic thing came back 27 years later. It's going to re it's going to reappear in your life at no, some I got point. It. Oh, you did get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a gentleman uh, out of Nashville, somebody contacted him and he, bless his heart, got the guitar back. He obviously played some money, didn't ask me for any money, just gave me the guitar. Oh, back that's great. After 27 years. I like that. That's cool. Had it been altered much? No, um, surprisingly not. I remember <laughs> very well that the first electric guitar I got was, I think I paid $600 for it and it was 1985. And that was an incredible amount of money. That's a lot of money still. It's a lot, yeah. Uh, what, what, what was your guitar? Well, that's it. It was a 63 Gretsch, I'm sorry, 64 Gretsch Tennessean. Oh, nice. And so actually for the money, it turned out to be an amazing investment. It's worth a lot now. Do you yeah, still have it? I have it hanging up on the wall behind me. Mm -hmm. And um, I had it at Saturday Night Live when uh, George Harrison stopped by to say, Hi to all of us after a night of partying with Lauren. And it was in my office and it's the exact same year and model that George played on the tour. And for a second, I thought about running down and getting that guitar and showing it to him. And then I thought, don't be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's one it. of those judgment calls. I think I made the right call. Yeah. I think, uh, I think at that moment that was the right call. Cause I, you know, to a to a geek like me, it was like, oh, this is perfect. I'll show George the same make and model guitar. And he would have seen uh, a kid with some acne who was undernourished and a big pile of hair on his head shoving a guitar at him when, you know, he could probably open a closet at home and 700 gretches will fall out. So yeah. want to hear just... a quick funny story? No, I don't have time for that. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. So, uh, Jack Bates plays in the Pumpkins. He plays bass. His father is Peter Hook of Joy Division and New mm -hmm, Order fame. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, they were touring and they had rented a Vox and the amp blew up. And it was from a rental company. 
So they knew not to just take the amp back to the rental company. They took it somewhere to be repaired before they returned it to the rental company. And even when the guy took the chassis off, they found scratched in, into the mainframe, George Harrison. Oh, for God's sake. It was one of George's amps that had been stolen in 68 that he'd played on like Revolver. And people thought it was lost forever. And so then it was returned back to the rental company who then sold it for, you know, some ungodly sum. But it's a cool story. I had, I was in uh, Nashville and there was a famous guitar uh, shop that I was touring. Gruen's Gruen? Guitars. Gruen's, Gruen. yeah. And I remember it. I spent a few dollars in Gruen's. Well, they tried to get me to spend a few dollars. Uh, at one point they showed me, because I'm a Buddy Holly fanatic, and mm. they showed me an amp that belonged to Buddy and they were showing it to me and then they took it off and they showed me where Buddy had put his, you know, written. And then- Did um, you buy it? Well, I was fascinated by it and they let me plug it in and I got to play That'll Be The Day uh, on a Stratocaster through that amp. And so I was just, j pure joy was coming out of my pores. And then they told me- um, How much it was. What they wanted for it. <laughs> and I realized I could get this. I mean, Buddy owned it, but other than that, it's a fair to- Midland old, sure, uh, you know, and uh, amp, and um, I could get that, or I could put one of my kids through college, and so I, have to, <laughs> I think I made the wise decision. I bought, uh, I bought it at auction. So in 1982, I went to see uh, Judas Priest play, mm -hmm. and it was at a racetrack, um, which eventually burned down. And when I was in there, it felt like a fire trap. It was one of those things where you're looking around and go, if, if something goes wrong here, I'm going to die. Yeah, but it's Judas Priest. Yeah. And so what a way to go. Not bad. Yeah. Judas Priest in 82, not a, not a bad way to go. So I bought the pedal board that KK Down, Downing was using that day and the amp that he was playing, those came up for auction. So I, I bought those. That's cool. So it's like a cool, like, you, you know, it's like, you if you close, told me, if you yeah. told me at 14 or something, by the way, you're one day you're going to own that amp and that pedal board from that guy who you adore. Yeah. Not, not a bad gig, right? No, it's like in a weird way, you're closing some mystical loop. Yes. By, that's how I, I feel. That's... That's why I, I, I would be happy if you had bought the amp because there's something that happens when you do stuff like that. It makes no sense at all, but it sort of confirms some other thing. Yeah. So I'm telling you that you're weak. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My, my only real regret in that regard was I was at an auction once, but we were shooting something at a rock and roll auction. Elvis Aaron Presley's library card from Hume's High School came up on the block and I was busy trying to position the cameras and wasn't listening and then oh, I looked no. and they were like going once, going twice and they didn't get the amount they wanted so they took it off the auction and I don't know where it is now, but I would have paid a lot of money to have had that in my wallet for the rest of my life yeah. and uh, missed it. And so if it's whoever owns it, let me know because you name the amount and I'll pay it. Um, Less than Buddy Holly's amp. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's all different now. My kids don't need to learn how to read. You know, we asked you before you came, if there were three songs that I would say were meaningful, affected you in a certain way, come to mind, sure. and you were kind enough to, to come up with three tunes. And so let me just mention the first one, sure. and then we can just talk about what this song means to you, and then we can play the song. Mm -hmm. That's the beauty of Sirius XM. Uh, the first one you told us was Wish You Were Here, obviously Pink Floyd. What was it about that song that grabbed you? Uh, my grandmother, who I was very close to on my mother's side, um, uh, was uh, dying of cancer, 57 years old. 
mm-hmm. and I would have been 17. So uh, this was my first experience in life where somebody I was close to was dying. Mm-hmm. And my mother and her, her mother, the one that was dying, were not close. So I was kind of caught in that too. And uh, as you do, you try to find something that you can hold on to. And for some reason, that song became the song of that hmm. thing. It sort of m- moored me into something. And the lyric doesn't really have anything to do with it, which is kind of interesting. But something about the emotional tenor of the song really connected me. And, and what's amazing is I've had the experience now countless times, and I'm always kind of in awe of it, when people pull me aside and tell me this song of yours when my kid was born, when my grandmother mm-hmm, died, mm-hmm. that was the song that got me through. And, and I go back to that moment. And it's, that's why it's always so humbling because I understand like, I don't want to say a song saves your life, but it saves something, keeps you, keeps you there. Yeah. Well, this song, it's, it, it's interesting you mentioned because I, everybody knows this song so well. It's such an iconic song. I've always noticed, and I don't, I'm not sophisticated when it comes to music or mixing, but it's so powerful the way it starts with that simple riff mm-hmm. and then it, the way it's layered, the way, uh, I guess if you're listening to it in stereo, you hear there's the original riff and then these, the, these complementary riffs that are coming in yeah. uh, on the acoustic guitar, I think. Uh, yes. and they're, and, and the way they're coming in at different channels. And then suddenly the whole thing comes together and it's very, well, it kind of starts rich. with the radio effect. Yep. yep. They want to sound like somebody's listening on the radio. Yeah. If you want a little bit more background. So when Pink Floyd was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I was asked to give the speech. So, um, um, I'm in the, my hotel room at the Four Seasons and there's a knock at the door and it's David Gilmore with no shoes on holding, you know, his guitar mm-hmm. coming to teach me how to play the song. Oh my God. So I got to sit with him and tell him, I can't believe we're going to play this song because the song means so much to me. And I had nothing to do with it. They, they just decided to play the song. And then, um, but they were at odds with Roger. So Roger wasn't there. The other three guys were. And then years later, this would have been about four or five years ago, Roger had done this thing where he was working with wounded veterans. There was even a guy who was playing drums, triple amputee, mm. you know, Iraq vets and stuff. He put together this kind of band of vets playing Floyd songs. And so I got to play on stage with Roger and sing Wish You Were Here with Roger and these vets, you know, for a sold out crowd in DC. So you want to talk about like full circle, like yeah. pinch me, are you kidding me? Like, and why this song? You know, I mean, I, I get it, but it's on some level, like when a song means that much too, and then you're standing with the people that wrote the song and played the song, it's wild. Well, that's when you go back. That's when you, I, I always time travel in moments that are anything like that. You know, for me, it's, uh, I, wait, I was the kid in Brookline, Massachusetts, sitting on the heating grate, watching a black and white TV and- Jack Parr. Yeah, yeah uh, you know, or so Andy Griffith. I was, trying, I was trying to date you. Yeah, exactly. No, uh, he would have been gone by then. But uh, but watching like Andy Griffith or, you know, watching any of these iconic performers or Carol Burnett and then how is it that I'm with them now and they even know my name? That's the time travel part that I yeah, find amazing. Right. And for you, it's going back to- you know, Illinois, and you're just like, wait a minute, how can this be? I was that kid that wasn't even allowed to touch my dad's guitar, and now individually members of Pink Floyd are teaching me how to play this yeah. song. Yeah, I, I'm, to put a bow on it, you know, when you're in music and you talk to journalists all the time, they focus on a lot of stuff that doesn't have anything to do with music. Yeah. Or yeah. why are you a musician? It's all about the accoutrement. Like my favorite question, tell us a funny tour story. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, tell us about the time he snorted Coke off the stripper's ass, you know? Right. And what they don't really understand is when you're a kid 
in, in my case and in Jimmy's case, you're in an abusive home. You know, you have literally no future, <laughs> latchkey kids, and you suddenly something that Rush is doing or Floyd is doing gets you to animate and practice four hours a day. And there's, I mean, it's not like there's somebody waiting at the end of that rainbow. Hey, kid, practice and someday you'll be on Conan's show. There's none right. of that. Right. Something in you animates like this is what I got to do. So when you're standing there with the people that got you out of the freaking basement, it's not just like, oh, wow, this is cool. I'm hanging with Floyd. You're like, holy fuck, this is so crazy. Because yeah. it's it literally is the embodiment of the dream. Yes. Well, it's a religious experience. Yes, absolutely. It's an absolutely pure spiritual experience yes. where, oh, the universe, it, something there is magic in the universe. Yeah. And then invariably you got to sit in the guy with an office who tells you it has nothing to do with magic. Yeah. Here's yeah. the piece of paper. Right. I once had a guy, <laughs> it was like a business meeting, <clears throat> excuse me, and the guy pulls out a piece of paper and he goes, well, we've researched you and um, your band is the 1,055th most searched band on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Now he's using it as a negotiating tactic to obviously get my price down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but if you really think about it, like even hit pause, and we're laughing because it's funny, right? Okay, but wait, there's 8 billion people on the planet, 7 billion people. You've made music, you're still in the 0.0001 percentile, and this guy's still hitting you over the head with the, you know, fist to the skull. Down you go, down you go. <laughs> so it doesn't feel like it gets you the way it used to. But that's what I'm yeah. saying is, 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 is you got to know who you are in there. Yeah, yep. That goes back to the kid in the basement that, you know, when kids were out front, I have enduring memories. My brother loved a skateboard when it wasn't popular in the 80s or whatever. And I remember on a summer's day, standing in my bedroom, playing scales, you know, trying to be Ingve Malmsteen and watching kids play on the driveway mm -hmm. and laugh and fall. And here comes the cute girl and I'm in the bedroom. You know what I mean? Why? Because anybody with the right mind is out there with the cute girl skateboarding. Right. Not in your bedroom trying to bring Yngwie Malmsteen. So that's what gets you through those moments. It's like, no, motherfucker, you don't understand. This ain't about that. I, I get that it's about that. And I get we're here to sort of do this dance. This, I used to tour with this guy called it the dick dance. Mm -hmm. We're here to do the dick dance about the money. Mm -hmm. But that's not why I'm here. Yeah. I'm a musician. I mean, and trust me, it makes no sense at all to be a musician. None. In the tech world, they call the dick dance uh, negging. Yeah. It's when you just say, you know, we're not really, your stuff isn't that good. And really not that. And then you think, well, why am I even why in, this, in the meeting? Why am I here? Yes. I'll just go. That's, but that's the older, the older you get, you get better at seeing, why would I even... I'm happy to just walk away yeah. and actually enjoy my family. So yeah. I was in one of those meetings once and guy was trying to alpha me that way. And I just looked at him. I said, look, motherfucker, you can't get rid of me. Mm -hmm. That's why you're talking to me. You can't get rid of me. You can't replace me. It has nothing to do with my crooked teeth. Mm -hmm. I write good songs. Yeah. If you, if you could get rid of me, you would. You get rid of me a heartbeat. And he said, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I like that but, he said that's true. Yeah. Yeah. God bless. Right. Yeah. Because. I'd rather, I'd rather, I'd rather be honest. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it is what it is, but. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's give uh, Wish You Were Here. Ba -da -bum -bum. Yeah. Let's listen to it. Eduardo, do your magic. You know, it's incredible to have the flexibility to work in all sorts of places, whether it's taking video calls from the park 
or emailing large files while you're grocery shopping. Sona, this is good for you. Is it? Because you're always doing whatever work you do for me from fun locations. But I like blaming it on not having reception. I know, but you can't do that here. Working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network, which is why you should check out T-Mobile, Sona. Then you got no excuses. They're America's largest and fastest 5G network. With T-Mobile, you'll be covered in more places with the 5G speed you need for your life on the go. Plus, they also cover more highway miles with 5G than anybody else. Check it out if you don't believe me. Hey, Blay, you've got T-Mobile, right? I do. I was actually just up in the woods in Idlewild. It was fantastic for the weekend. And uh, my T-Mobile didn't miss it. My T-Mobile phone didn't miss it. You know, I wouldn't think you'd need a cell phone because you speak so loudly into a microphone. (laughs) Well, I had to look some stuff up. Just take it it down I didn't know what brunch was. I can hear him. When the restaurant's open for brunch. Okay. uh, So I used uh, my T-Mobile coverage to check out brunch. That's all right. Anyway, wherever you are, you know, take it from the loud speaking Blay. If you're on the go, you want to be in the know, you want to make the show. What? Uh, T-Mobile. Okay. That's the one for you. That was I should weird. have rhymed it with go. Anyway, find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. Fastest based on median overall combined 5G speeds according to analysis by Ookla of Speed Test Intelligence Data Q3 2023. C5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. in today, Sona, I was thinking about just how much has changed over the years. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, we were all dancing the jitterbug and the Watusi. Okay. And then you grow up now and there's mosh pits and everything's gone <laughs> cuckoo. There's this new thing called rap. I don't know what's <laughs> happening anymore. But guess what? In a world full of change, there's one thing that hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. The great taste of Miller Lite. Are you with me on oh, this? Oh, yeah. I'm right there with you. Yeah. And you know, another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. Yeah. I hate a filling beer. Yeah. When I have a filling beer, I just want to sit down in a beanbag chair for six days, but not oh. with Miller Lite. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? Mm-hmm. Back in 1975, the big debate in America was what's more important, that it it's less filling Miller Lite or it tastes great. Yeah. The cool thing is when we all realized it's both. Okay. It's less filling and it tastes great. Yeah, all right. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality. Great taste. Only 96 calories. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and it's less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com slash Conan. Or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Yeah. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. My question is, when you first heard that song, it has this very powerful hold on you. You go on to have all this knowledge and mastery of recording so you know you know how the chair is made. Does that change the way you hear the song Yes, now? absolutely. And what are you hearing? You're hearing choices they made in the studio? Economy. Floyd is amazing with economy. Um, patience. They have patience in a way that sort of belies their age. You know, I mean, when they're making that, they're all like in their probably late 20s. Uh, when you say patience, in what specific way? Not, they're not in a hurry to get to anything. Mm-hmm. Like Floyd works on their own time scale. It's very unique. 
um, the way David has a way of playing guitar lines that you can literally sing along to. It's very rare for a guitar player to solo, but not in a wanky way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the little way they kind of cheat things in there. There's like the Richard's playing like the little synthesizer brass. Even the end, the, the the wind at the end is it's made with a synthesizer. That's not real wind, I think. I think it's that's a synthesizer sound. So they're working with artificial versus organic tones, stuff like that. Um, it can be a blessing and a curse to know how the sausage is made. On yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking is, uh, the, you know, I've spent most of my life thinking about comedy and thinking about what's the funny way for something to happen. And so sometimes I'll be watching some, I like to lose myself in something. I don't want to be thinking that way. And sometimes I'll see, oh, they're doing that thing now. And can, that, you, can you illustrate what, like, like, give me a comedy, that thing. Well, okay. Um, I mean, I can't think of a specific example. Uh, but I, just, I, I want to. I like to learn. So, just give me an illustration of like what, it, like there are. Like we in, in the pumpkins, we call it a gag. Yeah, in, in in the in the world of comedy, I mean, there are all kinds of things that are just the way things are done. One is the callback. You introduce something, and then it you you bring it back in later on. And sometimes it's done really artfully, and sometimes the callback is used in kind of a cheap way to kind of let's goose another laugh here. So uh, remember that that scuba diver that peered in the window earlier in the sketch, you're gonna see him later on. Uh, and uh, and sometimes it's earned and sometimes it's not earned. Sometimes it's the exact right thing to do and sometimes people are just doing it to do it. And so you when you when sometimes when you see an unearned callback or you something like that, I, I just go, nah, you didn't need that. And then my wife is saying, "What? why are you speaking over? You know, I'm just, we're trying to enjoy this episode of Who's the Boss? Why can't <laughs> but in the band we call it, But in the band, we call it the power of discernment, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. only somebody in the game knows where the line is. Right. Um, in wrestling, we call it cheap heat. Cheap heat is, I can't believe I'm in Indianapolis. This is the biggest shithole I've ever been in. You know, boo, <laughs> that's cheap heat. <laughs> Not very artful, right? <laughs> Anything that gets them booing, it makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, but but but, yeah, but if you exactly. believe in the art of something, you yep. don't want ch- cheap heat. You nope. don't want cheap laughs. No, you want exactly. The, you want the real laugh. Right. Right. Well, it's. Uh, I, I guess it's a bit of a snobbery to it. But no, no. I, but I don't mind it. Oh, it's true because uh, I remembered having. Uh, we did something at rehearsal and it did really well. And I remember Robert Smigel, our you know original head writer co you know co-creator on uh, uh on the late night show he was saying let's lose that and some of us were saying but it, it did really well at rehearsal like it got a big laugh and he went yeah we don't want laughs like that and i thought <laughs> damn okay See? that's true i admire that shit i i do love a laugh but you're right there are laughs you you know like we, we if the bottom line it's 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 not unlike what you were talking about before where someone's telling you let's look at the numbers we we all know that when we've done something, when we've done good work, we know it. You just know it. And so uh, if you did anything to add artificial sweeteners or doping, uh, it makes you feel shitty about the set whole thing. Set lists are the same. Yeah. Like we have enough successful music that we can put together a set list that we know people will approve mm-hmm. and like and probably buy t-shirts. Mm-hmm. As we used to say back in Chicago, no shit Sherlock, mm-hmm. you know? But the art is giving them something that they didn't know that they wanted and having them leave and say that was a richer experience than I thought coming in if they just play the songs that I know. There's this big event, you know this event, uh, Jim, there's an event for the Museum of Natural History 
that they raise a lot of money and right. all the big wigs on the Upper East Side and West Side of Manhattan go there. I had, you know, they asked people to perform at it and I, I think I did it at least once. Um, then they would get music. And I was there once, just I didn't have to perform so I could just watch. And it was Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers wow. were, were performing. It came time for them to do their music. And you know, you just imagine the richest room you can think of. And people are in tuxedos and everyone's gonna have their picture taken and it's gonna be in the most elite magazines that who showed up at this thing. And billionaires are there who have their name you know, carved into the wall. And Tom Petty got up there with the Heartbreakers and they didn't do one hit. <laughs> Everything was a deep cut. And I was so happy. And I could tell that uh, Tom Petty didn't give a shit. He was like, I'm gonna play you the deepest of the deep cuts and I'm gonna do the stuff that I wanna do. You're not gonna get Won't Back Down. Mm -hmm. You're not gonna get you know, Free Fallen. You're not gonna get you know, any of those uh, American Girl. You're not gonna get one of those fucking songs. <laughs> I really love, I don't know, it made me really happy to yeah. watch him do that. Yeah, I mean, I can only kind of nod my head. I've been in those situations and I've done that version of that thing in those yep. situations and got a lot of heat for it. Yeah, yeah. And I've done the other thing where you're doing what everybody wants you to do and you're just thinking, I'm just such a sellout. Like, get me off this island. Yeah. Well, the next song is Metallica. Yes. And you had, you made an interesting choice. Yes. Because I believe this song, Fade to Black, was their first, was it power ballad? Is that fair to say? Um, I actually, I saw an interview with Lars talking recently about how it was controversial because Metallica used acoustic guitars and it wasn't mm -hmm. very metal of them. Um, yeah. Yeah, Lars was just here. Oh, very Talking good. on the podcast and- um, Love Lars. Oh my God. It was such a good time. And- Every uh, time he says Metallica? I, yes, yes, way. yes. <laughs> and he says Metallica a lot. Yeah. Because you know, it's a big part of his life. Yeah, God bless. But, I, but I'm saying every time he says Metallica, I kind of chuckle. Yeah. Because only he says Metallica like he says Metallica. Yes. So it's with pride of ownership and the way he says Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the, for him, the correct pronunciation. Yes. Well, yeah. Not Metallica. Yeah, Metallica. In this song, you know, I think this is their second, is this their second album? Yes. And. Ride the Lightning. Yeah. Ride the Lightning, 1984. And uh, this is them taking a big chance because it's, uh, it's, it's an acoustic song. Or it starts out in a, as an acoustic song. But then it goes to the fiddly bit. Yeah, which is... A technical term. Which In means the industry, the fiddly bit. Where there's fiddles. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you want me to muse on this? Or sorry, I don't sure. know yeah, go for show. it. Yeah. Uh, so I'd, I'd gotten kicked out of my house. Uh, my dad, I think, he wasn't in jail at that point, but he was in some form of jail, like work release, where you, you got to be in the, in the jail at night, but you could be out during the day. And he wasn't living with us anymore. And then I got kicked out by my stepmother. So I ended up living with this drug dealer. And um, I have this enduring memory where I latched onto the song because it seemed to uh, sum up what I was going through, you know, this kind of existential crisis in my life. And I'd seen Metallica live and I'd seen the power of what they were creating. Um, but I latched onto this song and, you know, this is back in the day of the boombox. And so mm -hmm. I remember sitting at the guy's kitchen table, uh, you know, where he used to, you know, fiddle the seeds out of the, out of the weed that he'd sell to cute young teen girls. And that's a story for another day. Uh, and I, I was playing the song over and over and over again. Like I must've played it 
14 times in a row and he came down and he was like you gotta leave like he threw me out from listening to the song so many times like i basically went from a drug dealer threw you out yeah i was i was uh, <laughs> that's how annoying i was thrown out of my house and then and because of this song i was thrown out of the drug dealer's house where i was living uh-huh um but uh yeah it's it's interesting because it's uh, sometimes a band creates a song that's like like uh, you were talking about george harrison before here comes the sun is when i love the beatles but it seems to even Here Comes the Sun seems almost like timeless beyond the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is one of those songs from Metallica that like somehow it lives beyond the band. Right. It's like a, it's like a movie onto itself. So, um, yeah, I mean, what a song. James is such a talented songwriter and I don't know. I don't know what else to say other than it's just, it's, it's, it seemed to sum up what I was going through at the time. Let's, uh, let's listen to it and see what it, what it brings up. Fade to Black. I never understand when I watch Metallica how they can, there's so much syncopation there that has to be so precise. And I don't understand how they can do that without a conductor. Do you know what I mean? It's it's really incredible to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a feel thing when you play that type of music. I love that lyric in there. I think he sings, I was me, but now he's gone. This is, this is, I mean, if that's not a 17 year old, I'm not saying he was 17 when he wrote it, but I'm saying that's when you're he's going through that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still get the, I still get the feels on that. This is just great. Does that take you back when you hear that? Can you go, do you go time travel back to that point? I have a weird thing, um, and I've never heard it explained scientifically, but I have like a, uh, I'm going to stumble with the way to put it. I have a holographic memory when it comes to music. Mm -hmm. So when I, I can put myself back in the time and place emotionally when I heard the song and I have almost like total recall, mm -hmm. which is how I produce records. So I'll be in the studio and I'll think like, I want the feel of fade to black. Not that I want it, make that song but i want that feeling yeah i'm able to recall the emotional feeling resonance of it yeah. what what i was getting from that and i'm able to recreate it in my own music so it's a it's a weird gift if you can even call it that and it might be a curse sometimes where... no no actually i think it's really quite remarkable and i have no explanation i've never seen it explained and what's crazy is jimmy chamberlain has something very similar which is why i think that we've always worked so well together as he has the similar ability to do that but on the drums, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. But yeah, I, I can, I, I, I literally could go on for 15 minutes on what I was thinking when I heard that song at 17 at the table before the drug dealer came down, like yeah. musically feeling not like I was having a bad day. We did this same thing with Neil Young where we played, Neil was sitting right where you're sitting and we played some music. He sent in some music that I don't think he had listened to or thought about for a really long time. Right. And it was stuff that he was listening to in Canada in the 50s. Del Shannon, by chance? It wasn't, it wasn't Del Shannon. Uh, do you remember it was, um, there were like, really, it was very folky, mm -hmm. some of it. Uh, yeah, folk. Ian and Sylvia. Yeah. It was yeah. Ian Tyson. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Four Strong Winds. But, um, yeah, that was, was, that's a great version. I know he covered that at one point. Yeah. The four and it was Strong fascinating too, because it's very similar to watching neil listened to those songs and he would do what you're doing which is close his eyes and really go there and then he he came out of it after one song and it was like you i said well where were you right then and he went i remember there was a he described a jukebox and him standing there and it was you know whatever it was a nickel uh that you could put in to play the song and he had a whole pocket full of them and he was standing there and he would just feed them in and play it over and over and over again. That was his only access to the song. Yeah. And in his, one of his other memories was underneath the covers, he could get this one radio station that would play 
And remember, he I think there was some rockabilly song. Yeah, by a guy named Ronnie Self. It was yeah, called Bopalina. Oh my God, that's yeah. a, a killer song. Yeah, and yeah. I had never heard it before, and I'm a rockabilly fanatic, and I'd never heard Bopalina. I didn't know about Ronnie Self, who had kind of a very strange career outside the lines um, and never really quite made it. And uh, things didn't end happily for him. But, just, but him just tra time traveling back to... He's not Neil Young, the Neil Young we know. Yeah. He's a kid mm -hmm. and he's in some part of Canada where no one's ever going to be a rock star. That's not going to happen. And he's got the covers up and it's late at night and he's supposed to be asleep, but he's got his transistor radio and he's hearing that song. And so to me, it's very mystical and powerful to be able to sit with people while they listen to these songs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe there's some universal language that people with musical ability speaker here mm -hmm. yeah I, I mean i like i said i find it fascinating that journalists never talk about that right which is why i like talking about it because it's like it's 90 percent <clears throat> of my experience is what we're talking about here right and not all the other stuff not throwing a tv out the window of the hotel room no i mean that stuff's fun but <laughs> it, it doesn't it doesn't pay the bills yeah and what if someone's in the pool um the last song is joy division and i have to admit i didn't I didn't know much about Joy Division. And we got to get you on the on the Joy Division tip. Yeah, and I <clears throat> I didn't know. And then you brought up this song, and of course I know a lot now more about Joy Division now, and and what a really tragic story uh, it was. Very much so. Yeah, and uh, just their lead singer, guitarist, I believe also the songwriter or co-writer. They wrote. They wrote together. They wrote. He together. wrote the lyrics. Yeah, and just he, how he suffer from epilepsy and depression and just what a terrible i think 24 years old yeah Ian killed himself yeah and, uh, and i believe and i think it's true is it was like on the eve of their u.s tour they were just about to come to the u.s and i think he was under a lot of pressure mm. and he was legitimately worried that he would have because his seizures were getting worse and worse that he was going to have a seizure on stage in front of people and um so clearly someone who i mean just uh terrible um load to carry between that disease and depression and and everything yeah. but made this fantastic music and clearly this level terrace apart speaks to you i started making the argument back in the 90s that joy division was probably the second most important band behind the beatles in the 20th century and when i made mm. the argument back then people kind of would make a face like mm, kind of sorta and now people i think have kind of come around to it and what is it that specifically was it was the originality it was the uh, well, pureness what, of it well a lot of people now would call it like post-punk or something mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. what it really is 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 diy musicians creating great music without the conventional structures of music mm -hmm. if you think about like you were talking about rockabilly okay mm -hmm. well most rockabilly is based on one four five yep you know 12 bar blues stuff like that buddy holly is probably predominantly one four five but he's a master at it so imagine that start all starts in the 50s obviously coming out of jump blues in the 40s t-bone walker and stuff like that and pound basie and then uh by the time you get to the you know the late 70s you know uh rock and roll is kind of pretty much run out of steam zeppelin's at the end the who are not at the end but you know you could say their greatest work is behind them and here comes punk and you have all these people suddenly decide it doesn't matter how well you play yep as long as you want to get up on stage and you got some some moxie the crowd will sort of accept you so out of that comes talking heads and the cure and psychedelic furs and depeche mode and but joy division to me was the, the greatest of them all 
um, they capture a particular form of nihilism that's really hard to get that in a way that doesn't feel mawkish or childish. Mm-hmm. There's an adultness to it. I know that's not really a word, but there's a s- sobriety and seriousness to it. Um, and I, and because they were from Manchester, Manchester is like the Chicago of England, yeah. very working class. And and it's worth pointing out that you know not the same, but the same area. That's where Sabbath came from. It's it's a certain kind of doom, but it's not the doom of hopelessness. It's the doom of like, oh my God, like is this the life you I'm meant to live? Mm-hmm. Living in the shadow of the the nuke plant or the coal plant or the you know, and everybody around them is on drugs or drink, and there's no future, no hope, all that stuff. So punk really was this kind of cry against like fuck it all. And somehow out of that comes this really beautiful language that's held up really, really well. And Love Will Tear Us Apart to me is this perfect pop song from mm-hmm. people who are not trying to write perfect pop songs. It's a, such a strange thing. Uh, I, I have um, some Henry Darger. I don't know if you know that artist. He's a folk artist. He, mm-hmm. he, was, um, he was an itinerant sort of janitor, uh, a, uh, an orphan, grew up in an orphanage basically for 50 years painted these beautiful paintings that no one ever saw and they only found them right before he died and now they're worth hundreds of thousands of dollars but it's the idea that there's a certain if you give if you take somebody who doesn't know how to make art and you they just make art like a child would that there's a different type of beauty that emerges out of the innocence and the purity without having to go to art school right so i think joy division is the great embodiment of like they're the anti-beatles the Beatles is about craft and consciousness and worrying about, you know, the world that's in front of them and trying to figure out how to interface with Joy Division goes completely the opposite way and creates music of, of you could argue, of equal importance um, that still 50 years later is, you know, still inspiring people. So how many albums did they, do they just have one or two? I think three albums. Three albums. Love Will Tear Us Apart, I think was kind of towards the end of that yeah. particular arc um, before Ian... Um, killed himself and then the only thing i would add to this is that in uh joy division then morphed into new order and of course everybody knows new order they became a more successful pop band um using synthesizers and stuff like that and really created a completely different musical language but when they reformed in 2001 they called me and said we're going on this tour do you want to come play guitar with us on the tour so when we would play so i did six shows with them but they were they were going out as New Order. But for the first time since, I think, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure, for the first time since Ian had died in 2001, they decided to play Joy Division on stage mm. with um, Bernard singing. So imagine I'm in rehearsal with them in Liverpool or wherever we were. And when you play the New Order songs, they're playing with the backing tracks, synthesizers, all that. But when they would play the Joy Division, there were no backing tracks. Now I'm on stage with Joy Division. Now, the best way I can explain it is I've been on stage with Cheap Trick, uh, I played at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with three quarters of Pink Floyd. When you stand on stage with the band and you're in the middle of that, it is intense. Yeah. Because now you're in the three-dimensional space of their world. You're in the record with them. And every time, I'm getting goosebumps telling you about this, every time in rehearsal and on stage, every time we played Love Will Tear Us Apart, I would get goose flesh. My yeah. whole body would go into complete like... I cannot believe, it. and I'm not talking about a fan experience. Like, oh my God, I'm playing with Joy Division. I'm like, I am in the in, I am in this song, and I'm experiencing inwardly what I experienced as a listener. 
and it's 10 times more intense in the thing yeah. than outward. So, I mean, yeah, this is the real deal, this one to me. All right, let's uh, let her rip. Love will tear us apart. Joy Division. When you played on that song, what were you, what was your, were you playing rhythm? Were you playing, do you remember what you were doing? They let me do whatever I wanted to do. Uh-huh. And um, it was kind of funny because they're, they're from that world of everybody should just do what they feel. But I was getting into kind of sacrosanct territory where they'd created this beautiful thing. And at times I would get these sidelong looks like you're kind of going in the spaces you shouldn't go. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So it was a little bit of a negotiation. Sure. But invariably I settled on the idea of like, I get it because I've been in that situation as a band leader. Like this is the way it goes. But there's a... like what's sacred about it isn't whether or not I play the right note in the right spot. This is like where it's coming from in your heart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so invariably, I think they, they just kind of let it go. And then it, it got better. In essence, they let me do my thing. They worried about what way they were doing. And then it started to click. Um, and then, uh, and then it just kind of, it, it was what it was. There's something about, and again, <clears throat> I don't have the words for it and I might, it's maybe nothing, but when I listen to this song, it almost sounds like the vocals are mixed. They're almost, I mean, I'm not used to it, but usually the vocals on when you're listening to a song are so present. And here they're unusually um, submerged, almost they're just under the surface a little bit, which yeah. which is kind of ha- makes it more haunting, you know? Yeah, it strikes me because when you listen to it, um, it's not a perfect recording. It's not perfectly mixed. Mm-hmm. You can't hear every lyric. And yet it's one of the most famous songs of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of what I said when I was inducting Pink Floyd in the, in the rock and roll hall of fame, nobody was looking over my shoulder because I could say whatever I wanted. And one of the lines I said in there was, um, you know, it strikes me that the band you're inducting tonight is, um, one of the greatest selling bands of all time and created one of the best selling albums of all time. Dark Side of the Moon, which is essentially a conceptual record that I think only pr- really produced the one hit, which was Money, mm-hmm. which is a song in 5-4, not necessarily a waltzing Matilda, you know, not necessarily mm-hmm. right, a pop. Right. Uh, you can't really dance to it. Um, and I and I looked, and it, it was meant to be a, a funny line, but like with a, with a little bit of a shiv behind it. And I said, um, and by the way, they made that album at the height of disco. And I said, I know everybody and i know that there are many people in this room that are totally responsible for disco and i haven't forgotten you and i won't forget your name (laughs) and there was this weird like one of those like you motherfucker laughs yeah yeah like how dare you say that yeah but that's the point is uh we're talking about in in our own way and it's always hard to find the language we're talking about magic Mm -hmm. comedy is magic music is magic what makes people laugh there's a lot of talk these days because of, you know, woke politics about you can't say this and you can't say that. I mean, art is supposed to get into the uncomfortable spaces. Yes, it is. Yeah. Just the fact, like you were talking about Ian's vocals being mixed low, uh, did that make you listen differently? Did it make you pay a different attention? It really got my attention when I, when I was listening to the song. And of course, I've heard the song many times, but I was really noticing that accidents it's the same thing in comedy and music and probably in a lot of things accidents are where the gold is you know and i don't know if it's an accident but you said maybe they didn't mix it correctly but it certainly makes the song 
it's much more haunting that whether it's a, as you say, an engineering error or someone. No, more, I think I honestly, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think those are all intentional choices. Okay. Yeah. You know, I just, uh, it's, it's to me, that was arresting. Like it really got my attention that I, cause the, you know, it, it was like, I, I think I can hear him, but he's really back there. We're on the, we're on the precipice of AI kind of taking over a bunch of things. Right. And, and I'm already out there ringing the clarion bell that once kids get their hands on AI as a songwriting tool, it's over for the organic process of songwriting. Mm-hmm. Cause if you're 15, you have to spend 10,000 hours listening to the Beatles enjoy division to learn how to write a song versus you can punch a button and it's going to give you seven options. And then you could pick the best option off of that. Right. right. And then you can refine that and then press another button. It'll tell you a better version of what you think's a good version and all that it's over. Are we willing? And I'm just saying this in one of those kind of, uh, you know, it's like, I feel like Jason Robards would star in the movie. I'm about to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, where he, where he's he, not around anymore. So you may have to do it. I, I gladly play Jason Robards in the movie, but what I'm trying to say is, you know, where the guy gives the warning. Yep. Like, yep. Hey, by the way, do you really want to live in the world where you're willing to give up level terrace apart? The imperfectly made perfect song. Yep. Are you willing to give that up for all this other perfect shit, which it really isn't that great. And unfortunately, we we know in human nature that yes, they will. Yeah. But this way, I do, can can you see where people are going to have AI start writing their jokes? Oh, sure. Right. Yeah. Hey, AI, give me give me fifty jokes on grandma in the kitchen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, it's something that they're every. It's got everybody's attention. I mean, everybody in the um, as we record this, there's a writer strike going on, and that's this is one of the issues people are afraid of is what's coming up ahead and can these what happens when these big companies realize we don't really I think that need decision's already been made. Yeah. I'm not trying to be that guy, but I'll be that guy today. I think that decision's already been made. It's, I mean, it's easy to say it like this, like Chicago style. It's over, bro. You know what I mean? But it's yeah. over. Like The ship's already sailed. That's why when you see people arguing about $20 minimum wage, yeah, well, McDonald's just opened the f- first fully automated McDonald's. It's yeah. over. Like all that stuff's over. We're going to have to adjust to a new economy on every scalable level. I mean, there are already people talking about worshiping AI as a God. There are already people talking about like it's a religious thing. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's a Jason Robards movie, right? Right. So um, I'm at least glad I lived in the other world before I go into this other one. So at least I'll have the memory and I could tell my children what it was like to listen to Joy Division. And they're not going to be listening to you. AI will have taken over that <laughs> too. You will, Listen, not, be, get, you will not be parenting these children. Maybe that's a good thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story. So um, I made the mistake. Uh, it's a fine game, so nothing against Nintendo, but I made the mistake of buying a Nintendo Switch. Mm-hmm. I have a seven-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter. So of course, all they want to do all day is play Nintendo. They said Nintendo so many times. I said, you can't say the word Nintendo anymore, <laughs> but you can, you can refer to it as na na. So they come up and they go, dad, can we play na na? <laughs> Cause they know if they say Nintendo, it'll diminish their chances yes. of playing na na. Yeah. So, um, where was I going with the story? I think you, I repro- just went, you reprogrammed them. No, but I, oh, there we go. So would, maybe I just go now when they come to dad, can we play na na? I go, let's go to the AI. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm sorry. I love you, but <laughs> you know, co- the Conan, the Conan Chat GPT. Yes, like you'll exactly. have your own. You'll have your own AI. 
Oh, I'll go, I'm, I'll go to Conan AI, AI. They'll have you know figured out. I mean, because you know, because when when I dismiss already, their yeah, when I dismiss ahead. their their hopes and dreams, right. it'll at least come with a wry comment. Yes, yes, uh, <laughs> they can. I'm sure whether it's Sirius or whoever, they've already there's a there's a room where they've figured out my vocal tone, just the right irritating. Somebody amount. just released. I haven't listened to it, but somebody released an AI version of Kurt Cobain singing a pumpkin song. Really? Yeah. I haven't listened to it yet, but I think you, it's today, the song today. Do you want to listen to it or not, do, do you, is it one of those things you, you'll take I have no interest in it because, yeah. because it's sort of like. It's uh, not Kurt. Yeah. Well, it's also a parlor trick, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't want parlor tricks. I mean, right. cheap heat, right? Right. Like if I came to see you and you just gave me a bunch of lame jokes, that's not why I'm coming to see you. Well, that's what you're going to get. Okay, well, God bless. <laughs> um, I don't I've, work that hard anymore. I've never. <laughs> I don't know Dice, you know yeah. what I mean? And I've seen Dice perform live a couple times. I never laughed so hard in my life. I felt like he was in my brain mm -hmm. saying stuff that I, he, he has a way of saying stuff that's not even funny. Yes, he does. But he says it in a way that's so insidious. It's like planting mind virus bombs in my head. And I mean, I, I could, or I saw um, Bob Zamuda's Tony Clifton. Yes, yeah. I, I, I laughed so hard I got mad yeah. at him. <laughs> yeah. And I know him a little bit personally. Right. I wanted to strangle him. Right. Because I was like, stop making me laugh at this other kind of creepy level that you can only you can do. Yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. Dice has a thing where there's a famous recording of him bombing in a club. I think he calls it The Night the Laughter Died. That is so funny. And I've listened to it two times. It's so funny because he's doing his thing and there's he's not getting anything back. <laughs> and I like that better than hearing someone But you know, kill. he did that on purpose, right? Yes, yes. Because Rick Rubin, who produced that, said, you know, he did the very Rick Rubin thing with the beard and Buddha, Buddha Rick. And I, we were talking, because I knew he knew Dice and he was obviously there when Dice was headlining Aritas and all that stuff. And he did the, you gotta, the album you really gotta listen to is The Night Comedy Died or whatever it's yes, called. Yeah. That shit is funny. And it's so inappropriate. It's so I inappropriate. mean, you want to talk about, I mean, he, it's, there's about 8,000 things in there to get canceled. There's on. a famous Dice story that I love um, that Mike, Mike Sweeney, uh, one of my great writers tells, but it was, Dice in a club before he had, you know, become a big star. And he did borrowed someone, part of someone else's act because he didn't have the rest of his act that night. And he was still putting it all together and he borrowed someone else's act. And the person confronted him afterwards and said like, hey man, you took some of my stuff. And he went, uh, he said, hey, I'm trying to make it. I don't have time to fuck around. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's an excuse. <laughs> and in a way, I kind of, you're like, oh, okay, it's so audacious. I don't have time to fuck around. Um, we got to call this because we have, we have talked and talked and I have to let you back to your life, you know? Yes. I don't have a life. I'm just here. I exist here in like a broth, like a, a brain floating in a tank. They won't let me go. But... Um, <laughs> I was really looking forward to this, and uh, you met all my expectations, exceeded them. Um, you're just a great person to talk you to. You didn't cry, though. I'm incapable of that. I Did you was, ever cry on air? I don't think so. No, not that I remember. I don't. I'm Irish. We hide all that. Yeah. I mean, I'm predominantly Irish. So. Yeah. We, that's all we been, share that. Yeah. That's all been... Uh, it was beaten out of us in the 1800s. Yeah, exactly. That's, that, that ship sailed a long time ago. Um, 
This was this was great. Thank you. And I loved having and I, I swear to God, I'm at this point in my life where the thing I prize the most is that I get to you and I have crossed paths in the past, but to get to sit with you and really have a conversation is magical and meaningful to me. So thank you for doing this. Yeah, most of our conversations were in loud clubs. Yeah. With, with really desperate gold digging people. So yes. we never really got to get to the deep stuff until today. This was really special. Um, and I just want to reiterate that there, you have so much going on. Uh, Autumn, which is a, a rock opera in uh, three parts, uh, is um, your latest, what's the latest volume? You're continuing the journey. I think know? so, yeah. We'll yeah, see. With, you know, Melancholy and uh, Infinite Sadness and Machina, you know, like this is carrying, you're carrying on in that, in that story. And uh, you have a tour. The World is a Vampire tour starts July 28th. And are you going to incorporate some wrestling? We will have wrestling on the road. That's yeah. fantastic. Most of the dates, yeah. I own the oldest wrestling promotion in the world, the NWA. So That is fantastic. That's its own. Uh, we, should, we, we should do a wrestling part podcast. Two. I, yeah. Yeah. That could be a separate <laughs> yeah, thing. That could yeah. be part two. But some, I, other, some other time, but... I, I, did. I got some good stories for you there. I'll show you a clip one day of me. I was uh, uh, taping weird comedy down in Mexico City, and I taped a whole segment where I was a luchador, oh. uh, and I had a, I, I had the whole the thing, mask, yeah. the mask, and I they were teaching me how to do it, and I, I had the time of my life. I absolutely loved it. It's so, an interesting world. Interesting world. I'll throw on a, a, a mask and come on and uh, and wrestle while you play. Well, there was Red Bastine. I think he was known as the Red Baron, maybe. Mm-hmm. So. I could do that. He's passed away now. You could be the Red Baron too. Yeah. People will say, I'll be masked. No one will know it's me, but they'll say- Not at all. Something's very wrong with that man's body. Um, <laughs> and uh, and also the podcast. So- We uh, finished that now. Um, we So we, there's 33 episodes up. But you can still listen. hear them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But 33 uh, was- no longer in, We're no longer in contemporary time. But who is? Did I get too deep there? I don't know. I, now you, I, you, I feel like you've posed some sort of deeper question that I can't answer. Exactly. That's a good way to end. We'll just leave it on a, a hanging, a hanging uh, particle or whatever it's called. Um, Billy, thank you so much for thank doing you, this. I appreciate it. Conan O'Brien needs a friend. With Conan O'Brien, Sonam Obsessian, and Matt Gourley. Produced by me, Matt Gourley. Executive produced by Adam Sachs, Nick Liao, and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson and Cody Fisher at Earwolf. Theme song by The White Stripes. Incidental music by Jimmy Vivino. Take it away, Jimmy. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, and our associate talent producer is Jennifer Samples. Engineering by Eduardo Perez. Additional production support by Mars Melnick. Talent booking by Paula Davis, Gina Batista, and Britt Kahn. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might find your review read on a future episode. Got a question for Conan? Call the Team Coco hotline at 323-451-2821 and leave a message. It, too, could be featured on a future episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Fluffy bread, fresh tortillas, classic burger buns, and so many carbs. Carb fear is real, but Hero Bread makes healthier versions of the carb-heavy favorites we love the most. We're talking fewer calories, 0 to 2 grams net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and seriously great taste. Plus more of the dietary fiber and protein you want. No compromise. Don't skip out on your favorites. Just use Hero Bread. Get 10% off your order at Hero.co with code Hero10 at checkout. That's Hero10 at H-E-R-O dot C-O.